the worst thing you can do is a snap reaction to, I spoke to a mate of mine at the pub over the weekend uh, and it's Monday morning now I'm demanding a pay rise, right? Yeah. <laughs> like bad idea. Hello. So today we're going to talk about the easiest way for you to get more money this year. Investing, as we often talk about, is a great way to get rich long term. But there are two things that will impact how much you end up with. The amount of time that you have to invest and the amount that you can save each month. Today, we want to help you increase how much you earn and to just make sure that you're in control of the direction of your career. As our guest today, HR expert Wayne Clark says, no one else apart from maybe your parents and the Making Money team, of course, cares about your career. So let's not leave it up to other people to get you where you need to go. You have to be prepared to rustle a few feathers, right? And, and, and sort of employ a little bit of hustle. If you start to realise you're working for that type of person, get out. So today we're joined by Wayne Clark, who is a HR expert. Also, you are a founding partner of the Global Growth Institute yeah. and the author of this book, Hold That Up, How to Become a World-Class Manager. This is gonna be a great conversation. One of the most impactful things someone can do for their finances is just get more out of what they do every day. Mm, totally. Let's start off first of all and just say, what's the first step to that process? Well, the first step is probably having some sense of a goal in mind, right? So, you know, it might be the case that you've um, had a knee-jerk reaction to wanting a pay rise. And that can happen for many reasons. So it could be that you've been sitting with a friend or a family member explaining what you do. They ask you how much you get paid, you say, and they're like, you need to get paid more. And you can have like a weird reaction to that, right? So it can, it, so that may be one reason. It may be that you've understood that you're massively underpaid compared to people who do a similar job in, in a similar organization. And therefore you feel like actually you're not getting paid your worth. So that may be another reason. It may be that you feel like you've worked in a particular role for a long period of time. And therefore you feel like you should now be either promoted or paid more because you feel like you've contributed more. So there's all sorts of reasons of why you would say and accept that actually I think I now need to have a pay rise. Or it might be the case, of course, with cost of living that you've got, you know, six, 7% a year being eaten away and you truly can't afford to do the job anymore. There are some cases in some jobs where people say, I cannot afford to do this job, uh, especially if you're at the lower end of the pay scale. So there's all sorts of reasons why it comes about. And then I think the first step is then working out how might you negotiate a pay rise. And there's all sorts of ways we can get into about how you might do that. But I think, you know, the clarity on why you want it is really important as well, because it can be an irrational request in some organizations at some times. I think that's super valuable because the tendency, say, if you if someone goes, you should be paid more, or you find out your colleague is paid more, is to go in swinging. That's it. You know, you're just like, well, this is outrageous. And actually then the emotion kind of stops you from getting what you want, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really does. And that, that's, I think that's one of the biggest sort of challenges. And also if you go in with like an if, right, it's like the worst way to go in. If you don't pay me more, it, you're already in a bad position because you're coming in with the threat. And you can't be seen to go in threatening people because then what are you going to do if they say no? And I think if you're going in for that type of conversation, the smartest way to go in is in a way believing that they are going to say no. Because if, if in likelihood, if they do say no, or there's some counter offer that you don't really, that you're not ready for, what are you going to do afterwards? It's because like if you say, if you don't give me a pay rise, I quit, they go, well, we ain't giving you one. You're like, yeah. shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, Uh-oh. Uh, taxi. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. It's, a, it's a really dangerous way to go in and you shouldn't threaten people. Plus, there's a whole sort of bunch of stuff, right? You might not know about what's actually going on with the organization's finances. So in our days, I mean, we've surveyed, we've worked with about 50,000 managers and we've got data on about 15,500 managers now. And one of the questions we asked managers was, do you understand the organization's finances? I don't know what percentage you reckon would say yes, but it's 47%. 47%. 47%. 47%. 47%. 
And I reckon most of them are wrong. Yeah. Probably. You know, like they, they might, think they know, but they don't. Yeah, yeah they, they might have, have an idea. idea. When, yeah. I, when I worked in an organization, you would always think that you were the hardest working person. You step up a level and you go, oh, this is where the real problems are. Yeah. You know, you, you, you're at this level and you think, God, this is the trenches. You move up and then you're like, there's a whole nother layer of concern here that is so much bigger. Yeah. And you realize then the people at the top, they're just dealing with the end of the world every day, basically from an organization perspective. Yep. And you feel you're super important to the machine, but if you go in like that, they can be like, actually, we can replace you and we yeah. don't want someone who comes in swinging for a pay rise or That's whatever. It. I mean, people do irrational maths, right? So mm. I, I interviewed, it was a CEO and CFO of a healthcare, big healthcare company. So I was asked to go on stage and interview them. I'm not an interviewer, you guys are interviewers, but you know, it's not what I do for my day job. Barely. We're learning on the job. You're doing better than I am at it. Yeah. Um, so I'll go on stage and then as I'm getting on the stage, the CFO, and I've got 300 managers. So it's not like a, an intimate conversation, is it? Cause you sort of look right and you've got 300 right. people staring at you. But as I get on stage, the CFO says to me, Wayne, ask me whatever you want, right? Because I don't want you to look like some stooge of management. So as I'm getting on the stage, I'm thinking, oh, this is this is good, right? So he unveils the figures, like the profit figures, and they are brilliant. The crowd erupts into applause. I start clapping. I don't know why I'm clapping. I'm there clapping. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why I'm clapping. I'm just like, I'm getting any of it, right? So I said to him, look, I'm no genius, mate, but I can divide that number on the screen by the number of people in this company. And if I divide that number, that's way more than the 1% pay rise they've been told they're going to get. So where's the money? And he's like, <laughs> oh, I never worked with him again after. Oh. True story, yeah, true story. But, he's, but he did a good answer and he said, uh, 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 you know, we've invested X million in IT infrastructure. We've invested money in building services, projects. And when he explained the money away, it made absolute sense. The story he explained took like 15 seconds tops. But what they've done is produced this beautiful sort of thick brochure of pie charts and bar graphs to 300 managers to go back and sit with their teams and explain the finances. And I said to him, with all the will in the world, these people are not going to go back and do that because they've been at the conference for two days. They've probably got three to 400 emails. With all the will in the world, they're not going to go and sit and go through that conversation. But if they take that headline figure back and the 1%, right, we've made X million profit, but it's 1% pay rise. This is the manager talking to the team. What did the team say? We've been shafted. Yeah. yeah. And, and they're absolutely right because there's nothing to fill in the gaps. It, it's not like you'd say to the team, hey guys, it's 1% and the team are like, mm, fair enough. We probably made some investments for the future sustainable yes. growth of the company. <laughs> they're not thinking that. They're thinking we got done over. So, you know, what we're saying to the managers is when, and we said to the group in the audience, we said, when you explain this number, you've got to use the story that this guy just explained and explain what happens with, most people are quite rational if they're given the info. I might not like it, but I get it. So if you're that individual then and you're going, okay, I've just had a conversation with my colleague who went to a different business and they're earning 20% more for me for doing the exact same job. Yeah. I need a goal now or like a plan. What is, how does that, how do you flesh that out? Well, the, the, I think the first, the starting point is then to look at what your value is. And I think this is the one thing that you can control, right? Going into a situation where you believe that you should have a certain amount of money is one thing. And that might be, you might be right or wrong. And we don't know what reality is. What you can control is the value that you're bringing and the value that you're genu genuinely adding to the organization or to the team or to the people the organization serves. That could be clients, customers, patients, if it's hospital, you know, whatever it might be. So I think that's, that's the key thing is to start with working out like what value do you bring to this and build a case 
Right, so you want to go into that conversation with like a business case. You know, if this was, I don't know, you're going to go and try and upsell someone on this. You know, it, it, you know, it might be that the fact that you've bought this for years, right? You've paid me the same amount of money for the last five years, but now I'm coming to you saying this does new things. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it looks like the same cup to me. Yeah. I bought it for five years in a row. It pretty much works. So yeah, but I'm different. I've changed. I've added more value. Really? I can't see the value. And often the big, the big danger is that you haven't had good conversations that are documented about objectives and goals. It's really ethereal and what's the word? I need to hit that. It's really <laughs> like, um, what's the, I, I guess it's, it's difficult to be able to make an assessment on someone's performance and growth if there's nothing to assess them on, mm-hmm. right? So very few people have good structured, well-structured one-to-one conversations on a regular basis with their line manager, which result in a clear set of objectives. And then the problem comes at the end of the year for some sort of review or appraisal conversation. And it might be hard to demonstrate what you actually achieved. And also as a member of the team, you can get pulled in a hundred different directions. So I might sit there at the beginning of the year, you're my manager, we agree these five things I'm there to do, makes sense to both of us and the organization. Next day comes, I get pulled out into another project. I get asked to do something else. You ask me to do something else. I feel like I've worked my socks off for the year. Then we sit back, you know, 364 days later to assess these objectives. And you're like, you've not delivered them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but- But you asked I, me to change departments I, halfway through yeah, the year. Yeah, I've been so busy. Yeah, yeah, but I can't justify a pay rise for you because you've not delivered on these. And these objectives got rolled up into something else. And often, depends on the size of organization, I might have to go in, you know, you're gonna, as my manager, I'm depending on you to go and fight my corner to be able to convince other people in a decision about who gets pay rises. Because it's not often that we just blanket pay rise everyone, especially if you're asking for an exceptional pay rise, right? If you're asking for maybe inflation or what the company's giving, that's one thing. But in this case, we're probably going for something that's gonna be some way life improving, right? It's gonna improve my quality of life to some degree. And you're probably talking 10 to 20% of a pay rise. This is why I love sales, because it was so easy for me to be like, I've delivered two million pounds worth of revenue. So it's very easy to have those conversations. It's like, here's the revenue. This is why sales guys tend to get paid more in an organization because they see the flow of money and it's very easy to quantify the value. Mm -hmm. How does someone who's like an admin do that? Well, again, it's it's all about the objective setting. So you want to be able to say, if it might be of developing relationships with another team or department, it might be, I don't know, in terms of the work that you're doing, the day job, even it could be if I'm answering the phone all day long, right? It might be the way that I'm answering the phone. It might be the quality of the conversation I'm going to have with the clients when I talk to them. There's always something that people can improve, but the-, the A KPI almost. A KPI, but yeah. it has to be agreed and probably documented would make sense. Unless you've got an unbelievably trusting relationship with your line manager or with someone senior in the company who is going to remember that and fight your corner when it comes to asking for a pay rise. So, and and again, which is why we come back to understanding the numbers, because it might be that you're asking for something that's impossible for the organization to deliver on, which is why I go back to the the thing to focus on is how do you build your individual value? Because the idea is that you should be making yourself more valuable moment by moment when you're with any organization, because the time may come when you need to leave. It might be the fact that you work for a subsidiary of a foreign company And I've seen in boardroom discussions, people will say, actually that subsidiary, we can do without that. That's a decision made 2000 miles away. That's gonna mean 800 people are now redundant. They could have worked their socks off for 10 years and done everything to build value. But as of tomorrow, they're no longer necessary or we're gonna sell that part and the people who are gonna buy it are gonna chop half of them away. So, you know, all of that stuff is out of your control, which is why you've got to make sure moment by moment 
Do you think there's, uh, you said like 10 to 20%. Do you think there's, I know everyone's individual and it's subjective, but do you think there's a range that you should ask for in a pay rise? Yeah, what's fair? Yeah, what's a fair, like, yeah. Like you say, you want to beat inflation, but if you ask for 20%, they might not be able to actually afford to give you yeah. 20%. So what's a safe number to start on? You don't want to undersell yourself or you don't want to go too high? Well, it, again, it's a difficult one to answer in a way because the organization may have a policy. It may have um, paid banding. It may, you know, it may not be possible and they will revert to that and say, this is totally impossible because it sort of contravenes our, the way that we do things. And if we make that judgment for you, then actually what we're doing is being unfair to another thousand people. Um, so that that might be a difficult position to be in. But I think as a gut feel, I would say 10% is probably about yeah. palatable. It would feel that way. 20% feels like quite a lot just yeah. by the number, but 10 would be a sensible number, I think, to ask for. And, and you'd be inflation marginally. Yeah. Yeah. Most times you would. And recently, like you say, but you know, Traditionally, 10% would always be a, a significant pay rise for most people, wouldn't it? Yeah. So are you, do you think then like actually a, a conversation someone needs to have is, I want a pay rise today, but this is a six month process before I'm, especially if they've not got these clear objectives, they don't have the clear deliverables. Yeah. They don't have these regular one-to-ones that are structured that say, you know, this is what you need to achieve. In yeah. sales, we always used to do that. If I can, will you? So yeah. like, if I can give you this, will you buy? Like, so with the sales manager, it'd be like, if I can hit right. that target, will you give me a pay rise? And then yeah. it's like, a, it's very definite then in six months. Yeah. I think that would be the smartest way to do it because what it would do, and I would break down the six months into say like two 90 day cycles. I think three months is, is good because in three months I can kind of see it. You know, I can see December, I can see January and February. That sort of makes sense to me. For the next 90 days, I develop some sort of action plan, which is more measurable. And you can maybe even break that down into 30 day cycles and say, right, what could I do over the next, you know, 90 days that would massively build my case to the point where I could go into that conversation confidently and ask for 10% or more and feel like it's a, a foregone conclusion that they would say yes. And if they say no, obviously I'm not going to go in there with a threat, but if they say no, I've put myself in a good position to be able to then make another decision. That might be, I might need to look for other opportunities inside the organization or indeed maybe even think about leaving the organization itself. But I think everything that I could do to put myself in that position, and there is a few things I think that would be smart to focus on in how to do that. I think one big thing would be to start to look at what the market says for the value of what you do. And that can sometimes be a bit of a disappointment, right? So it might be that I'm the best cleaner in the world, but there's a market cap on what cleaners are going to get paid. So it might be that actually I'm asking for something irrational. And therefore, my conclusion might be I need to look at building skill set and doing something else that adds a bit more value to the organization in some way that may be possible. So I think, you know, so look at what the market says. And then the key thing, if you're really looking at the as we would look at like the law of reciprocity is what is it that I can do that would add real value to this team, to this organization, to the people we serve and therefore have people see that I'm really valuable. And often most people have a big opportunity here, but don't go the extra mile. So I'll give you a quick example. So I work with a, a, a big global bank and I was in the Middle East with them a couple of months ago. I'm talking to 400 of their top leaders from around the world. I look at one of their, and, and these are the 400 people that are designed to improve customer service for their clients and customers, right? And it's not great. Their customer feedback scores are not good. I go to Facebook and on Facebook, I find that they've got 2.3 million followers, right? maybe giving away the organization, but 2.3 million followers. And I ask these 400 people in the room, of the 2.3 million followers you've got on your Facebook, how many of you have looked at the data that comes back from them? And they sort of look around at each other. And this blows my mind, right? Because these are the people that are there, paid a lot of money and flown all the way around the world to improve the customer experience. 
Then you look at the person who's like next to me and we were talking about this. And I said to him, if you wanted to massively grow your value in this organization, I would be all over that data. You mine that data properly and go, here's You're some an animal analysis. For it. Yeah. yeah, so that yeah. when you talk to the head of customer experience or whatever the job title is, you are seen as invaluable because you're bringing something that no one else can. So if you were an individual even remotely connected to customer experience or customer service improvement, why wouldn't you be all over that? And that builds your case that you're going into that conversation as an absolute superstar in that area. It's all free, it's all available, but most people aren't thinking of those steps. So you should think outside the box. Totally. Do the like actions that the rest of your team are not willing to do as well. So when I was in sales, there becomes like an arrogance around salespeople of like, I don't pick up the phone, you know, like, because it's like, I'm, I'm too busy managing these huge clients, blah, blah, blah. And I realized like new business calls in on that line all the time. So an hour a day, I just pick it up. And right. then I'd every one in every hundred calls, I'd land a new client. And one in every hundred of those would be massive just yeah. from picking up the phone. And then I became the guy that was like, he wins all this new business. I was just answering the bloody phone and getting the inbounds. There you but, go. but all it was, was the action of like, in a day salespeople should be picking up that phone. But there's like this, level of arrogance around them that's like, I'm far too busy to pick up the inbound, the admins will do that. Yeah. Just by doing that, that like made me stand out and getting to know the people in the organization who do answer the phone mm. and going like, you know, schmoozing the internal relationships so that I was getting the leads basically was, was another thing. But I think like you say, you've got that data set there, just go have a look at it. Go and do it. So for example, I'm looking for two raises right now. Ah, yeah. <laughs> two. Two, one yeah. with the podcast, uh, trying to get paid like Damo, and uh, one with- He's never uh, getting paid like I'm never getting paid. That's the picture. I'm a lot more experience to get paid like Damo. I want to get a bit closer to Damo, hopefully. Um, and then one with my my job um, in venture capital, I'm head of sales, I run a sales team. You get pay rises every week at that I place. I need more, I need more. When, if I'm looking outside the box, could I potentially, for the podcast, be like, hey, everyone, Everyone listening, can you please spam in the comments to make deserves a raise? Uh, or or can like, we, can I interact with that? How, how would you think like- Can we give some context to that though? The, the reason I get paid more is because I, so I have a YouTube channel yeah. and that generated the audience for the podcast, right? So yeah. I bought that with me. So Tomain is like a good friend of mine, equal standing. We sit here as co-hosts. I don't think I'm deliver better than him in, in that sense. But the reason is because I do work outside of it and I have that reach. So that was the value that you would say maybe as a boss there going, he bought. And he's got a lot more financial experience. Mine's more like crypto and commodities. But, he's like- But Tomain is at a point now where if he wasn't here, there would be something missing, you know? So I, I, like, you know, people would, pe people really like him. Yeah, you know. I hope so. Will is sweating <laughs> in the back. <laughs> Producer's sweating. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do it on public now and then, yeah. If he doesn't get a pay rise, but yeah, so, can you understand why I, why initially, but yeah, how would you approach that? Well, things change because kind of in a way, the worst thing you want is for you to become a competitor, right? Yeah. So, you know, what you don't want is you don't want to split the podcast up. It changes the dynamic. And plus yeah. now you've got, and we've seen this in so many situations and it happens in companies all the time. You know, often people can leave and then they just set up in direct competition uh, and that makes things difficult for everyone. So, you know, or if you're of the mindset, grow the pie because the pie is big enough, then everyone wins. But I think like, you know, that has to be taken into account and things change, the dynamics change. It started a certain way, but now things are different, right? So things need to be adjusted and looked at differently. And I think this is one of the issues why, you know, talent gets lost in organizations because they've not adjusted to the new reality. One thing that for Tomain say then, okay, in terms of pay rise, would it then be expected that the, the employer might go, well, actually you need to take on extra responsibility then? 
or you need to, because most people say, I want more pay to do exactly what I'm doing right now. But yeah. is it likely then that the organization will go, well, if you're going to do this, you need to do more work? Well, it could be a smart way to do that in a way, because what, it's depending on the scale of the organization, because in some cases, it could be like peeing in the ocean. Do you know what I mean? Like you can put in extra effort, but it has zero impact because this thing's so big. It's such a juggernaut. Whereas in smaller organizations, it would be a clever idea to uh, leverage the entrepreneurialism. So again, if I'm if I'm doing something with someone who is evidently head of sales and sort of killing it against other you know high performing people in a private equity or finance business, it figures to me that that person's got a skill set that could probably be utilised in a smarter way. So how could we create an avenue for that entrepreneurialism to benefit the organisation, and then they share in the upside of that, and that changes the dynamic a little bit. So as someone asking for the rates, would you say I can do, I could add extra value by doing this? Yeah. Or would you want the company to suggest No, it has it's to, better to come from you, yeah. yeah. And say, yeah. I can do this. That's I it. deserve a rate because I've done this. I can do this. And then, yeah. So yeah. And, and you'd, you'd probably try that a couple of times, right? So, and if you feel like you're getting thwarted, then you'd say, all right, I'm out. I mean, and this was the thing. I, I, I started at um, Deloitte or Arthur Anderson, as it was many years ago, and did uh, about nine, 10 years in professional service firms. And I got to the point where, and I loved working for the companies I worked for, but I got to the point where I thought I'd need to get out and grow my own operation. You know, yeah. I just wanted to do that. And and I had the most amazing boss at the time, who was my who was the managing partner of the firm, um, who allowed me to cut a day down a week and then use that day to be able to grow my own business on the side. Oh, wow. I mean, it was a really amazing wow. um, conversation we had. It took about three months to you negotiate. you had that conversation? Yeah, I had that conversation. Did you go to them with that conversation? Yeah, I did. Because they're not going to come to no. you. No, and I, I, had a, I had an epiphany moment because I was asked to speak at this conference in, um, in Vancouver. And it's like, I was doing my day job for like nine years. And I think I was doing a good job of my day job. And then at the end of the conference, maybe it was being an English guy in Canada, I don't know, but I had this like line of people, they queued up to ask me questions. And you start to feel like, like a preacher. I was getting people out of wheelchairs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Come yeah, in. Yeah. Yeah. The, power, the power of Christ compels you. Yeah. It felt like that. Yeah. So I saw on the plane back, I thought, this is something. I what, am that guy. I'm that guy. Yeah. I'm what, him. Yeah. yeah. Why, why don't I use this stuff and grow my own thing? And that was the, mm. and I went back and again, I'm sort of full of that thing, right? So I get back into reality, into Baker Street and, and I realize I'm not that guy. <laughs> and he was looking at me like, what are you talking about? Yeah. You know, I want to, you know, take a day a week. And we negotiated that over a few months and we got to a good agreement with it. But if I hadn't have done that, if I hadn't have had the relationship I had with my boss, then there's no way I would have been able to do that. And, you know, and we've now have a business which is 13, 14 years old. One thing that I got from like your your work was this this thing about having a conversation with your boss. And actually your boss doesn't want to have a bad conversation. And most of them are humans who go home and, you yeah. know, when if you put something to them, they're not gonna like slap you down necessarily. They they probably will hear you out. Yeah. But can we talk about that conversation? Because mm -hmm. we've talked about the goal and that. I want to talk about, you know, how do you get them in the room? Mm -hmm. And then what do you say to them when they're in the room? Yeah. Well, the, let's assume that you've had this six month run up. You've done some prep. You've worked out where you are versus the market. You've looked at what skill set you've got and what adds value. You've identified a few areas where, and it's kind of like selling a company, right? The idea is you don't want to be able to demonstrate all the value because for the potential buyer, there's nothing, there's no more upside. So you want to demonstrate there's some trajectory of growth there. So you've identified a few things as like, you know, teasers or carrots where you can move this forward and the, you know, the manager and the team benefits. I think the key then is finding like an environment that works for everyone. So you might feel quite intimidated and it could be a certain boardroom you get asked to go to. Don't go to that place. Try and find a cafe or, you know, somewhere that you feel comfortable. 
And, and as they often say, there's a saying in, uh, it says, you know, no strategy survives first contact with the enemy, right? Right. And often what you can the do is, yeah, you can plan out a whole series of how this conversation is going to go. You sit down and then you're sitting with your line manager who says, oh, you know, I was up all night because Charles really sick. Everyone's got a plan to get punched in the mouth. Yeah. That's what Tyson said. Yeah, that's same right. thing, yeah. same thing. But it's it? like that. Yeah. And then like the conversation just goes left. And yeah. you're like, oh man, this oh, is this, this wasn't part of my plan. Yeah, this yeah. wasn't part of my plan. Yeah. So you should expect it's never going to go the way you expect, yeah. I think is the main thing. And then you have a few scenarios. I think, and then the, the key is you're trying to essentially, like selling any product or service, you're essentially selling a vision, right? You're selling something that in a way should have a benefit to this individual. My first ever boss when I worked for Deloitte or Arthur Anderson as it was, said to me, "If that," he said, it's important that you don't understand your boss's objectives, understand your boss's boss's objectives. And he was very clear. He said, look, if you help me to win, you win. Yeah. I thought, what a great piece of yeah, advice early yeah. on. I was like 22, 23. Make your boss know. look good. That's what I always used to say to the new starters. Yeah. Like, I was like, that's our sales manager. Make him look good. If he steals one of your sales or claims a victory, don't worry about it because he'll remember that you gave him that credit. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, really and, is. Yeah. So, so I think finding a way to initiate and articulate whatever that vision looks like in a way that excites the person you're trying to get on board with it, which is in most cases going to be your supervisor or your line manager. It might be something where, you know, you, you might recognize that, you, let's say I worked in a factory, let's make it like, you know, accessible for many people. And it, it looks like, you know, my line manager or my supervisor has got a difficult fractious relationship with that guy over there and we have to work together. So one of the things that I could, you know, talk about is how I'm going to make the relationship between our teams better. You know, that would make their life, his or her life, so much more enriched. I'll take that drama away from you. Or, That's it. Yeah. And it's like a burden off of them, makes their mm. life easier. And, and as we've often learned, you know, human beings are pretty straightforward. If we can decrease the pain and increase, increase the pleasure, both things have a similar effect. So again, could I take, and it's a great phraseology, can I take something off of their back, which makes their, you know, their load a bit lighter. And another thing is you've got to be, I think, aware of maybe what you're dealing with in the sense that, Every individual's got a story and it might be, and, and often an ambitious individual in the team for certain managers and certain leaders can be a challenge for them because what it does is it in a way throws up and puts in front of their face the fact that they may not have succeeded as much as they wanted to. Yeah. And you've got certain managers who would be, who would do nothing more than help you to succeed and see you, you know, want to see you win because they genuinely want you to be totally fulfilled. Other managers who don't want you to win at all. Because How do you deal with that? I think the key is understanding their story as much as possible, right? And you're not always going to solve it. That's not realistic. But what I've, so as we went through lockdown, I got a bit of mosh one day because I was looking through like LinkedIn posts and, you know, everyone's talking about challenges and whatnot. So I said, right, I'm going to do an open public thing where if any random member that I'm connected to wants to talk about their life story and their challenges, I'll do it. And for about an hour, I try and listen to their life story, wow. right? The fascinating thing when you do this exercise is as you watch people telling you their life story, they start to solve their own stuff. Yeah. And then often they start to realize why they do the things that they do and they start to identify things that hold them back. So that's with a stranger. If you do this with someone that you actually know, it's so powerful because even with someone who's a manager or a boss, you start to realize, ah, oh, I get it. That's why you don't like to go to those meetings. That's why you react that way when someone says that. That's why you would only attend this thing or do things in a certain way. That's why you manage projects that way. It helps you to understand them in a way. And often what you're doing when you're trying to, you know, the best idea is you're trying to sell a vision to someone who you actually understand. It could be, and I think this is sounds sexist, but I think this is actually worse with men. And when I've done this exercise in companies, 
it's, it tends to be men are worse at this, where they have known and worked with each other for 20 years, but never knew each other. Is it true that women are less likely to ask for a pay rise than men? I mean, I don't know what the data says on that, but I think anecdotally from what I would suggest, I think women would definitely tend to be more, um, I don't know what the word is for it. They, they, they would work smarter and harder. They, they would go the extra mile, whereas some men probably wouldn't as much as women would do. So I think, you know, and so that's one challenge and often they can downplay their own skills and experiences. So I think, you know, like the imposter syndrome thing, you know, that I've come across when I talk to lots of different people at work, it's prevalent in both sexes, of course, but I think with women can be even worse, which is totally unfounded. They've got, in many cases, much more experience, much more um, adept at doing the job, but often feel like they can't ask for what they want to ask for, for all sorts of reasons. And that can be also women, that can also be people, you know, with disabilities, that can be ethnic groups, like we feel like, you know, there's a, there's a reason why I shouldn't ask for this. We all doubt our abilities as well, That's don't true. we? I do, I'm a legend. Yeah, this guy doesn't. <laughs> this guy doesn't. Yeah. Okay, so, so, you know, you said go into the meeting and, and almost be prepared for a no. Mm. So, but you can still have a positive outcome out of that. Other things that people could, you know, they want they want a 10% pay rise, they come out of there, they didn't get that. Is there still a win in that somewhere? You know, how are you managing that situation? Well, what you would probably do is go in with a few options of things that you might request. Right? So one thing might be, you know, we start with the star prize if we're going to win the game show, which is going to be 10, 11, 12, whatever the percentage is that you're going to ask for. And that you may realize quite quickly in the conversation that actually that's not either not possible, it's off the table for discussion, or it might be up for debate. And this is going to take some time. And that time, you know, the discussion I had with my boss about this day a week wasn't immediate. It was kind of met with, okay, you need to develop a business plan and show me some data and some stats and some stuff, which felt uncomfortable. So I went away, put together some documentation on it, and it took three months to discuss. And during those three months, it's difficult as far as I was concerned, because we all now know this thing. It's like I've let something out of the bag. And you know that really, I want what I really want to do, even though I've been here for a while and doing a good job, you now understand that I want to grow my own company. Mm-hmm. It's a little, it's like sort of in a, in a weird way, sort of semi breaking up with someone saying, yeah. <laughs> we're going to be so together for the next found out you've been months. interviewing elsewhere or something. It's yeah, bit, it's yeah, kind yeah. of like that. It's yeah. difficult, isn't it? Yeah. So I, I think that's a really important thing to, to get into and make sure that you're like clear about, you know, that next step. Yeah. And if they do say no, you know, wh- where do you go from there? Well, so, so sorry. I think the first thing is to have like this number in mind. And then what you might have is some alternative ideas of things that they could, um, that could benefit everyone. So that might be development opportunity. So it might be something that either as a, as a paid course, something where you want to go and have some experience of doing something, or it might be something inside the organization. So I lecture at City University. I do like uh, five or six lectures each year. I did one on Monday. Um, and one of the things I say to the undergrads and to the master students is we talk about like the dream manager. And we describe the dream manager does two things, right? The dream manager is someone who understands who you are and genuinely wants to know who you are and help you to develop and grow yourself. And is able to help you understand the network and the matrix of the organization that you work in. Right. And there's red flags, right? So I would say to an undergrad, or you know, if you've just finished or you know, just graduated and you're gonna go for that interview, if you get a sense that the manager you might be working for uh, is, you know, it's like two things. If you get a sense that they don't really care about you and your growth and development, and there's ways that you can ask those questions, that's a red flag. And the big red flag is how well networked are they in the organization? Because it might be that you're asking for growth and development opportunities, but unfortunately you've got like a dead end as a manager who doesn't really know many people. They could work for, you know, 
an organization that employs 200,000 people doesn't mean much if they're not well networked. So I think, again, in the conversation, you've got the percentage and you've also got some requests of development, growth and opportunity for your own growth and development. Uh, and that could be internal, that might necessarily not cost any money, or it could be external, which could mean it needs some sort of business case to fund it. So, you know, a request could be, you know, I would like to spend half a day a week working with another team or understanding how that you know that those guys work over there that helps add value to what we're doing here. I mean, it's not a, it's not an unreasonable request. No. Um, but again, it's sort of ten percent, right? So it could be ten percent of cash, could be ten percent of your time to do something else with. Which ultimately, if you're being really smart about it, you want to use that percentage of time to do something that's value adding to you that makes you worth more. Yeah. Either here or should I have to leave makes me valuable elsewhere. But frame it as a benefit to that manager at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Because. You know, if you've only got the pay rise and they say no, you're then you, you're like, oh shit, where do I go from here? But yeah. if you go, okay, well, that's a no. What about me working 10% of my time with this team? I think yeah. the manager's going to find it hard to say no again, aren't they? That's right. And let's imagine the other way, right? Let's imagine this is a job that you don't particularly enjoy. And often what we found in our data is jobs that people don't enjoy, they tend to want more money for. There's a weird inverse relationship with it. Let's assume I really dislike this job. But actually, I want fifteen percent more to cope with the shit. Of being now here. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, now, yeah. now, yeah. now I don't because I've got fifty. Let's assume we have the debate, and you say, right, okay, yeah. cool, fifteen percent, we're on. I now get paid fifteen percent more Still for a job it. I don't like, mm. uh, and now your expectation of me as my manager goes up because you need more from me, more of the stuff I didn't like anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and how long does that fifteen percent make an impact for? Month or two, yeah, couple max. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you readjust, don't you? You, you, buy, it, don't you, you yeah. buy better wine. Yeah, go to a nicer restaurant. Yeah. Upgrade that, the car. Yeah, 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 that money's now normal, yeah, yeah. Uh, and therefore I'm still stuck. And actually, I'm, I'm asking for more, which is going to be impossible. So again, that's the reason why spending those six months would be a clever idea because you might you might reinvestigate the idea that actually I don't want to be here at all. I don't want to do this job anymore. I want to do something different. I want to apply my skills elsewhere. So again, it gives you some breathing space. The worst thing you can do is a snap reaction to, I spoke to a mate of mine at the pub over the weekend uh, and it's Monday morning. Now I'm demanding a pay rise, right? Yeah. <laughs> like bad idea. Yeah. Can you guess what the biggest learning has been from doing this podcast or even my YouTube channel? It's that the most important investment you can make is in you. So for me, my path to real wealth isn't through investing, it's by building this business. And that's why I'm happy that we're working with Hostinger. Hostinger help entrepreneurs, freelancers and side hustlers with their websites. My favourite thing is their AI website builder, which helps anyone create a professional website with zero coding experience. You just describe your goal in a couple of sentences and the AI creates a beautiful looking website just like magic. You can then customise it, use the AI assistant to generate SEO friendly text and even use their AI logo maker. It's fast, user friendly and of course what I like the best is it's great value for money. You can get website hosting in a free domain from £2.99 a month. So if you want a website, then check out Hostinger. And if you use the code making money, that's making money all one word, you'll get 10% off. And I've left a link in the description for you. Before I became a creator, I was a sales guy. I mean, I love selling. It's how I rebuilt my life after some wrong turns in my 20s. I also delivered Chinese takeaways on the side, but that was more fun money so I could go out on a night without feeling guilty. Sales was where the real money was at. And one tool that I found really useful was LinkedIn Sales Navigator. It's a sales intelligence platform that helps you identify and then get into conversations with high value customers so you can drive more revenue. 
You can use it to look for key signals like recent job changes, so you can find buyers who are most likely to convert. And because they've got a billion people on the platform, I mean, the chances are your targets are going to be on LinkedIn. Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date, first-party data so you can get into conversations with the people that matter. So if you want to give Sales Navigator a try, you can get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash upsell. That's linkedin.com slash U-P-S-E-L-L for a 60-day free trial. The future. The past. Being late for a train. You being late to pretty much everything. The things that make us anxious are pretty ridiculous. Our standard of living has improved so much over the last hundred years, but are we less anxious? Oh no, I'm pretty chill. But if you do suffer from anxiety, check out our partner, Sensei. I've been using their device and it has been helping me. It's shaped like a pebble and it vibrates to help calm your vagus nerve. I just pop it on my chest for 10 minutes if I'm stressing and it settles me right down. Plus our listeners can get 10% off with the code MM10. That's MM10 and there's a link in the description. Like you say, it's probably like something that's dead simple to you. But I think most people sit there going, I want to pay a rise, but I've just got no idea how to go about this. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. they go in, they ask for it, and then they, they, they get told no and they come back out and they never ask again. Yeah, and, and your mind goes into hyperdrive, doesn't it? Once someone says something that you're not expecting, it's all gone. It's like sort of the adrenaline kicks in. Uh, and, and your manager's good at having that conversation. They might have it a lot. It's the first time you've ever had it. Yeah, so you yeah, go in yeah. like this and the manager's like, no, because of da 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 and you're just yeah. like, you feel like you've just been spanked and turned around. And I've met, I mean? some, I've met some real psycho leaders who like enjoy saying no. Nothing gives wow. them more pleasure wow. than to sort of smack people down. There was a guy that he ran this, um, it's in the building game, right? Building uh, in the construction business. And I, as I go in to meet this guy, as I'm walking down the corridor, I saw this guy called John who's worked there for about 30 years, right? In a sales role. Uh, I think he was either sales director or he was like very, very senior. And as I walked past him, I went to say hello to him and he's, and I've met him a couple of times before and he just looks away. So I'm like, all right. So I go in to see the boss. He's in these, this sort of uh, quite intimidating character. And he says, um, you know, how are you? I said, I'm good, thanks. And I said, oh, I just saw John in the corridor. And he says, um, oh yes, we've just let John go. And I'm like, okay. Uh, and and he, he talks in analogies, this guy, right? And he said, I said to John, John, uh, we here at the company, John, we're like a boat, John. And John, you're like the hull. You keep us like grounded in the water, John. Uh, and then uh, he said, but the unfortunate thing is, John, all the rest of us on the leadership team, we're on the top deck, scanning the horizon, looking out. And then apparently poor John says, well, that's where I want to be. That's where I want to be with you guys on the top deck, on the, looking at the horizon. And then the boss says, oh, you John, see there, John, therein lies the problem. And then I said, what happened then? He said, well, we just shook hands. And I said, what? And, and that was it. And then he said, if you'll pardon the pun, my analogy ran aground. <laughs> right? But hold on, it gets deeper, it gets deeper. So at the time he was pouring me a glass of water in this like cheap plastic cup. So I can like, I can just sort of remember the crinkling of the cup. And as he about to pour the water, he just finished the story. And then he did this. Anyway, Wayne, how are you? Move I on. Thought, I thought just you, ruin that guy's I life. Thought you basically. absolute psycho. Savage. Yeah, you've just like this guy's thirty years. That's how you've done him. I've, yeah, I've, yeah, I've, I've definitely worked for some bosses like that. Especially in sales, I feel like they they fire people like yeah. very aggressively and harshly. Well, it was like the when bottom ten percent go every year. Yeah, so like when like, I was a broker, like, when I was a broker in the city, they'd be like, "Get your stuff and get out, get off my trading floor." I'm like, "Whoa!" Like in front of the whole company. That's so brutal. Yeah, yeah. Like you say, and that's that's, but it's like um. It's like a 
it's almost like a show of power. Maybe, yeah. maybe this person's got some real deep-seated issues of their own, like you say, that they feel that they need to just crush people to well, gain Well, I mean, if, if you accept that, you know, according to many studies, 1% of the population will be a clinical psychopath, you know, which is actually about 600,000 psychopaths just in the UK alone. And many of them find their way into certain roles in certain professions like finance, because actually what you can do is you, if you, it's actually a pretty good skill set, isn't it? Yeah. If you're really clever and you genuinely can't care less about people, not because you don't, but because you're perhaps clinically incapable of caring about other people's emotions, it's a pretty good combo. It's almost like the lack of empathy is a superpower there. It's a like massive saying, superpower yeah, yeah. because you can sort of, you know, step on people all the time and have no guilt about doing it, well, which is I, what this guy if is. If I own the organisation, I'm like, he can be the guy that does the dirty work. Like, get rid of him, get rid yeah. of that. And he's just like, yeah, what, well, no bother. Which yeah. is why I think it's so important as someone junior into the workplace, get a read of this and look at these things quickly because if you figure as i say to the undergrads if you start to realize you're working for that type of person get out yeah you know, like don't waste two years they're trying to negotiate a better pay rise move and you know, leave yeah. you know this is the smart smart strategy do you find when people leave that they do get bigger pay rises is that is that true it can often be a smart way to do it to make those career jumps every two to three years make a jump and often what will happen is you'll go in probably at a higher level than you would have done so when i left the company i started at when i left university my boss actually said to me it'd be a clever idea for you to leave come back in three years time and you'll come back in a more senior position than if you would have stayed here interesting and you, and in in the process you've negotiated two pay jumps yeah right yeah, when, but again, on the other side, I think it's about knowing your space because let's say when I was in sales slash account management, the person who'd been there the longest got the best accounts. Yeah. If you leave for a competitor, they're not going to give you the crown jewels. Yeah. And it's the guy who's, you know, everyone comes in and they go, oh, that guy's earning loads of money. It's like, he's been here 10 years. Mm. He's got like the best clients. He's got the pipeline, yeah, the he's best got a, clients. Yeah, like, because yeah. over time people leave and it's like, oh, we trust Damien or Tomain. He's getting more. the best. This client's worth 25% ah, right. of our business. Mm. We're giving it to our best guy. Well, that's actually the easiest client to manage yeah. because they're so ingrained within the company. You don't need, you don't need to do any work. Just show up. Yeah, you yeah, just show yeah, up. Yeah. But yeah. you're only getting that by being there for a long time. So yeah. I do think it's like, you know, you, you've got to know the kind of sector you're in. I think mm. that's maybe a sales specific thing. That, yeah. But if they are unreasonable and they go, you're not getting a pay raise, you can't go work with a team, get back out there and grind. Mm. And, and you're now at the point of, I should probably leave. How yeah. do people approach that decision? Well, you need to get active, I think would be smart and try and have as many conversations. And I think it's it's much easier, you know, today with many of the digital tools that are available, certainly with something like LinkedIn and other platforms where you can start to initiate that search and that sort of inquiry uh, on, a, on a large scale. Um, the other thing is, so that's the external route. The other thing is, again, it can be possible to be able to make an important move inside an organization. And what you'd need to be prepared for is you have to be prepared to rustle a few feathers, right? And, and, and sort of employ a little bit of hustle. So what happens is we investigated this idea a few years ago of saying, why is it that more CEOs in organizations are more excited generally than anyone else in the company about the strategy? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's not, you know, what, what you see is often you meet a CEO or a top team and they're high-fiving and they're loving it. Uh, you sort of, the further you walk away from them by grade and geographical distance, the more muted the response gets to whatever this strategy might be. The reason why those few people are excited about it is because they made it up. Yeah. Things that you design and create, you generally think are pretty good because you're emotionally They feel entrepreneurial and in control. Look at us. Yeah, yeah. We're yeah. the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that, and that's the issue. And what often happens is they, they feel tremendously isolated because there are not many people in truth in the organization that are up for that thing. So again, it feels to me like, and that's the way I kind of saw it every time I worked in a company, I felt like a bit of a kid in a candy shop because 
in a way, you've got all, all you need to do is out care the majority of the population and the majority of the population don't care that much. It's not hard to be, to stand out in that way. No. Yeah. So again, understanding the CEO, I worked for a company once and I developed a relationship with the CEO, which really upset two lines of people between myself and the CEO. I reported someone who reported someone who reported to the CEO. I went to the CEO and I'd started there. I'd been there like a month. And I said, it'd be really important for us to talk every month. And he's like, why? I said, well, because my job was designed to, you know, facilitate and improve engagement and communications in the company. How can I do a good job of that if I'm not connected to you and I'm hearing your information third hand? And he said, all right, fine. So now I had to go back and say to my manager, I'm meeting the boss every month. They didn't even meet the boss every month, which caused some issue, but it worked out well. I'm in the same situation. I'm, I have meetings with my CEO every week and the people in between me and the CEO, they were like, they're like, oh, you're, you're her favorite and like, oh, you're, you're her threat. pet. And yeah, because yeah. And it's like, doesn't that cause more internal issues? Cause I'm, I'm kind of reporting to one of the directors who's below the CEO, but I meet the CEO every week. So it's, yeah, it's caused me a little, little bit of headache. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, and, and, and I think it's okay, isn't it? As long as you're doing things like you feel for the right reason and yeah. it's making the right impact. And it's okay to, to be, um, to accept that not everyone is going to like you. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that a lot of people don't feel that comfortable with. But, you know, we're trying to solve something here for the organization, for the customers, for yourself. And it doesn't always please everyone. I think this is an important point. So, you know, one thing that came across in the research was you saying that your manager isn't actually that invested in your, your long-term career, you know, mm. so you need to kind of make those decisions sometimes because they don't care where you're going to be in 20 years. Yeah, I mean, apart from your parents, maybe mm. if you're lucky, if you've got a parent or two, there's not many other people that care very much about where you're going to get to. Yeah. It's the sad truth, right? Yeah. But it's, it's not even sad. It's just a reality. It's one of the things that I often talk to the undergrads about as well. You know, other than your parents, that's probably it. Um, and, you know, there's a great speaker, this guy called Jim Rohn. Have you seen any of his stuff? He was um, quite influential in this Herbalife movement in the US. Uh, and, and gave a, a wonderful speech about, he calls it like the not much speech. So he asks people and says, you know, if, if the economy changes, what's that going to do for you? And everyone's sort of in the audience says, not much. You know, if inflation goes down, what's that going to do for you? People are like, not much. And he said, if you don't you know, make plans of your own, then people will make plans for you. And what do you think they've got in store for you? And they all say, not much. Yeah. <laughs> so it's absolutely yeah. right. People often don't have a plan for you. And it's, this is a really important area as well, I think, because... Often in people's personal lives, we take leadership in so many areas that could be clubs we run, that could be family relationships. We could be dealing with family issues that require exceptional leadership and resilience. Something weird then often happens to many people when they walk inside the doors or virtual doors of the organization and then start to think that actually they're not in that position. They're not a leader. They're not able to do these things. And actually my growth and development and my future now becomes someone else's problem. For years, I was involved with looking at employee data in surveys. And what we'd find is people would say in the surveys, my manager doesn't develop me. There's no career development path for me. And it's fascinating because in my personal life, I take complete you know, responsibility for what I'm up to. You should develop yourself. In work, yeah. it's the, there's a belief that actually the organization cares. And there are some organizations that are truly caring organizations headed by truly caring individuals who do care. Um, but I don't think you should bank on that. It's, it's like a cross your finger strategy, right? Yeah, I mean, in my background, I will admit that it was always like, you don't go above your manager. Like if you do, you, you're you getting managed out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Because, and a lot of sales environments are very boys clubby. So mm. if you did, you know, but I guess I had managers that always looked after me because I got on with them. But I saw that if they didn't like someone, they were done. Yeah. You know, it didn't matter how good they were. If you weren't part of that club, you were you were out. Mm. How do you kind of, how how important do you think it is to be liked 
to get what you want in an organization? Well, I started with the same day uh, a company with this guy. And um, I noticed that after about two months, he had a much better relationship with the boss than I did. And I thought I got on with the boss until I figured out what was happening. And I never really drunk much as a kid, you know, like as a teenager, wasn't really into it. But I noticed every Friday he's going to the pub with this guy. And I thought, ah, oh, this is it. So I went to the pub for the first time like, and I drank two pints and I was smashed. <laughs> Absolutely legless. You got that money. Yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't. And I thought this is like ludicrous. What am I doing this yeah. for? But, and I realized that there was a way to build a relationship. And I built a great relationship with this guy in the end, but there's a way to do it. But what I think the realization was is I'd realized quite soon that, that relationship is key. Yeah. And often you don't think about the relationship much. What are some ways that you can maybe build those relationships without, you know, the pub on a Friday night or smoking? Yeah. I mean, one way in the in the office space could be to ask people if they want to have a coffee, for example. That could be a good way to do it. If they're entering coffee, maybe it's a tea. But something where you can have an opportunity to get some one-to-one -one time with someone can be a really valuable way to do it. And then again, you know, if you're managing to get sort of half an hour or an hour with someone, how best to use the time? So again, most people, if you ask most people, how are you doing right now? Their response is usually, I'm manic. I'm stressed, I'm overworked, I'm exhausted. You rarely find people who say, I'm good. I'm just sort of seeing as the day goes. I've got a lot of space in the diary and I'm wondering what to fill it with. <laughs> it's, it's not that. Most yeah. people are sort of stressed out with something. So again, the building relationship part might be a few moments to ask someone how they're getting on and get them to talk to you about what they're up to, what their work challenges are. People like an opportunity to de-stress and sort of de-gas in those type of conversations. So it's a good way in the office. And I guess if you're virtual, it could be a way to do that again virtually. So it might be that you might want to invite people to find out about what's going on with their project or with their team or anything that you can help them with. Um, but the, the key here is you've got to be proactive. People aren't going to walk past your desk or phone you up or Zoom you and say, um, do you fancy having half an hour to talk about stuff? It generally doesn't work like that. Um, what, what we found in our research is most organizations would say, most people in most organizations would say we're way too siloed. So silo working is a consistent problem in every organization all around the world. But it's odd. It's not like I'd be walking past your desk and say, uh, oh, hi, Damien. Uh, I know we don't know each other, but fancy getting a coffee and talking about work challenges. Like, no, weirdo. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that might, but you've got to find a way to do that. And you've got to build those relationships. I got the, um, so in my job when I was in sales, one thing I realized was that the payroll team were really important, but no one understood the, the dramas of payroll. They just thought, oh, they were awkward, you know, but actually yeah. they're processing 80,000 people's pay every week. And it's, a, they were like, you know, at it constantly. Yeah. I asked them a little favor and then this is so, this is so weird, but I got a giant cookie with my face delivered on it to them. <laughs> yeah, to like these like the 200 payroll people and then they never forgot me. So anytime I ever oh, called- that's genius. That's yeah, nice. I was just like, thank you, like this. Like a, it genius. was from Millet's Cookies. It was like a heart with my face and the thumbs up. And then what everyone in there knew me. And then anytime I called, I'd be like, I need this person paying now. It wasn't like, you've got to wait. It was like, yep, done. Yeah. You know, oh, that's that so little yeah. and, and everyone, all my team were like, you, you're such, you're so cringe why are you sending a cookie with your face on it but it just stuck, yeah and yeah. they knew my face and it was just like and they, they liked the fact that another department valued them because they don't what i think most people don't realize is everyone in the organization has a hard job yeah. everyone is doing something that's difficult and if you went and spent some time in their shoes you would think god there's a lot of pressure in here it's yeah. not easy yeah i think with the silo in effect we tend to think 
everyone is making my job difficult. That's right. You know. Yeah, and they, yeah, it's not it's not that deep. They're not no. thinking about you at all. No, and my jobs are hard. My jobs are hardest. They're fighting. Else is yeah, I'm chilling. the most important. Yeah, without me, this company wouldn't exist. That's like, you know. Yeah. But but they, they, I'm <laughs> right, I keep the lights on here. That's why I tell them my work. Everyone's <laughs> fight, everyone's fighting fire. Yeah, yeah. you you you're all welcome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everyone's fighting their fires, and if yeah. you can show a bit of empathy like that, or just strike up that conversation, yeah. and if you can genuinely listen, like you say, I think it was a really good point you just made there that I don't want people to brush over. Everyone wants to talk about how hard their job is and mm -hmm. like how rubbish it is, but most people don't want to listen. They're yeah. just like, I'm not interested. But if yeah. you genuinely say like, what's going on and what's your drama and you listen, people will love you for that. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think this is a really important point as well, because as, as you know, in the line of work that I'm in and that my team have done over the years, you know, I, I must have now bumped into and spoken with, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in all around the world. And I'm yet to find a person yet who doesn't have an ambition or a dream or a desire to do something. For most people, it, it could be buried quite deep. And what I'd realized when I did those sort of um, anonymous sort of meetings as we went through lockdown with people, you recognize that everyone, as stuck as they might feel, have got something in there, but not many people are lucky enough to be able to have that type of conversation with someone. And we sort of describe it as, you know, when I talk with, again, with younger people, with undergrads, I talk with them about, have you had that conversation? You know, it's not like the birds and the bees conversation, but the bit about hopes, dreams, and ambitions because not many people have had it. And I've I've met with, so is a, is a great one. I met with a guy who has run a car business, was in the car business for years, um, about 40 years, very successful, made an absolute fortune. Uh, and he said to me, he went to a conference the year before, which was around this employee engagement management topic, which is why he'd asked to meet with me, and said to me that he'd never realized he wanted to go into the car business. His dad expected him to go into the car business. He'd done 40 years in the car business. And a year before retirement, he realized he didn't want to be in the car business. Wow. Whole life on autopilot, very successful, outside looking in, made a fortune. You say, what a guy, you know, he's done it. But actually has realized a year before retirement, it's kind of like he's wasted a lot of his life because yeah. the expectation was there. And you find that in a lot of professions. It's why we found out when we looked at the data that a lot of the um, like legal profession I so say, if you look at careers where you're going to end up really happy, according to the stuff that I've seen, generally lawyers aren't going to fare that well when it comes to happiness. Because you often got really highly intelligent people who get slammed into a company and have to do a few thousand hours of chargeable time every year. And actually it sort of thwarts their um, their intelligence and their entrepreneurialism as well. It's quite an interesting dynamic. Like my mates who are doctors are like that. They, they, they went into it, but it's yep. like, you know, being a doctor is a great job. And now they're all like, I could have been an investment banker and been retired by now because yep. they're that level of intelligence. That's right. And then, yeah. you know, they're, they're not getting paid very well for what they do yep. hours wise comparative to other areas. Yeah. See, see, this is why we come back to the role of the manager, because again, as a manager, if you looked at this in a, in a, in a lovely way, right, that's what I can find for it. And so I've got five people in the team, you know, wouldn't it be nice if I could spend a little bit of time with each of them to understand where their hopes, dreams and ambitions might be. And that could be an hour conversation with each of them. It might be with some people that you get to the realization that they don't want anything. You know, so I worked with someone as well that they were like, you know, I was born here, I live here, I'm going to die here. I'm like, all right, uh, and I don't want any more than this. I just want to do my God, I job. I wish I was that person. What is, I was like, I just, I'm happy being where I am. It's quite enviable though, yeah, in a way, is. when you, yeah, when you meet is. people like that, because what you're trying to They're get satisfied. to is They're happy. totally content yeah. and don't want anything else. Yeah. Uh, but the, the unfortunate thing is, the way that most organizations work is every six months, I've got to pummel that poor lady and talk to her about her hopes, dreams and ambitions and her goals and objectives. It's like, you know, where do you see yourself in three years? Here 
Doing what? This? <laughs> All right. But, a good, I, but a, good ma- a, a good manager would sit her down and be like, you know, Julie, whatever. Yeah. I know what you're going to say. So let's just have a let's just have a chat for a minute. How's the kids? How you know? How's the See, family? Like, and that's what a good manager should do in that moment, shouldn't they? They yeah. should know their member of staff. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about the manager point because I think that's like everything that you've said here is underpinned by the fact that actually on the other side of it is another human being mm. and. I think most people don't see their managers. Like you say, the hatred thing. Yeah. It's like when we were in sales, as soon as someone got promoted to manager, it's like, right, you got to delete everyone off Instagram. You got to not post on social media anymore. Mm. You're now hated by your team. Oh, really? Do you know wow. what I mean? It was kind yeah, of like, yeah. that's how it was. It was like, yeah. you're not one of them anymore. Separate yourself from them. Mm. You'll go out with them once a quarter, but you won't get as drunk as they will. That was literally the conversation that it had. And <laughs> it's like, you've got to separate yourself from them. Can you talk about your work with managers and how you view how they should interact with their team? Yeah, well, we, we looked at the, a very sort of simple, basic question that we asked a number of years ago, because I spent years feeding back employee data to CEOs. Most of those CEOs said, you know, we want world-class managers in our company. And I'd sit this side of the table talking to you as the leaders. And I'd think, well, that makes sense. World-class leaders, managers, that makes sense. And then a few years ago, we asked a basic question, well, what is one? You know, what what is a world-class manager? What do they do? So we went around the world. We started out in New Zealand and worked all the way through to Brazil, interviewing CEOs, HR directors, frontline managers, teams, and saying, you know, if you were a CEO, and according to you, what behavior would you want to see from a world-class manager? And they said, ah, this and this and this. We spoke to managers and said, what do you need? Ah, this and this and this. This is the problem. Team members, what do you need from a great manager? We took all of that input and then built in a way, a, a working model of what we considered to be the 12 most important things that a great manager should do. And we sort of then went back and tested it and it kind of stood up everywhere that we spoke to. Um, it's not a perfect science. You know, someone said if, you know, if management was a science, we'd have an equation for it by now because we've been at it for like thousands of years. Um, but there are some things that seem to be quite universal that seem to be the same in Vietnam or Morocco or Beijing or, you know, Buenos Aires. They seem to be the same sorts of things that people want. And we took a view of saying, right, this is what a world-class manager in essence looks like. So like the first sort of two key modules we talk about in the program are what we call great goal setting. So, you know, how do you have a great goal setting conversation with someone? Next one is how do you have an aspiring or inspiring appraisal conversation with someone? Uh, we separated those two things out for a good reason. Uh, third thing we talk about is how do you optimize your time? So you've got so many hours, you know, how do you make the best of that time? How do you run effective meetings? How do you improve communications in the team? How do you manage up effectively? So hyper practical things that in a way you can kind of put into play like, you know, within an hour, but they're the same issues that managers everywhere kept telling us were the, were the problems. And again, you know, if you looked at any population of people and said, right, you know, let's say we look at 100 managers, um, it seems to be that you're going to have between 10 to 20 who are always going to be much better than everyone else. Not because they're nicer human beings, but they're just more effective and they've learned through their own ways of doing things in a more effective way. And then what our interest was, was looking at what do they do? You know, and if we followed them for a week in the life of and watched their behavior, what do they do? I worked with, again, one of the big global banks and I was with one of their like hyper-effective leaders. I spent two days with him in Buffalo, New York. Um, and I just watched him for two days. Like every meeting we went to, he's documenting, noting everything. I'm a terrible note taker. Oh, and right. even when I write notes, I can't read them after, no. you know, but this guy was like meticulous. And you realize in the, in the micro, that's his behavior, which is why he's so effective. It's just like, you know, watching some of your content and you see some of these brilliant investors. I'm sure the way that they manage money on a day-to-day basis is better than most people. Therefore in the macro, they're generally pretty well off. And it's like that with these effective managers. We were trying to study what are these micro behaviors that tell us something about their performance overall. 
But there are, there are different shades of that. Like I've worked for some sloppy managers, but they were amazing because you wanted to do well for them. Mm-hmm. And like there's, I've worked Good for point. other managers that were very analytical and data-driven, but you just didn't want to perform for them. Yeah. So they were they were never going to win, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You know. There was empathy, like one of the characteristics that came through. I, I would say like as a 21st century skill that would set you apart, empathy is probably the most important thing I would focus on. Because the ability to see something from someone else's perspective, especially if you apply the modern lens of a cost of living crisis, where, you know, we might be sitting there doing work on something, but actually in the back of my mind, I'm thinking gas bill this month. Then I'm going to make this payment. Yeah. You know, car bill, you know, whatever it is. I've got stuff going on. So to be able to see things from someone else's perspective, I think is key. Plus in the world of knowledge work, which most of us are in, you know, it's all about understanding how, you know, sophisticated people can think and apply critical thinking to a, to a subject, which brings value to the organization. But again, seeing things from their perspective is probably one of the most valuable things to do. So I just want to summarize the points, because again, I want to make sure that this is super actionable for people. Mm-hmm. I think you, you work around managers is amazing. Um, and and I, li- I like that that conversation happens because better managers, better organizations, happy staff, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but for, for individuals who are looking at this in January thinking, you know, I want to earn more money, have a clear plan, figure out how you can demonstrate value, make sure that that's a trajectory that's going up as well, which is what I've just taken away from. You don't go in there as a finished article going, this is me complete because they're going to be like, well, we've got that already. Why yeah. would we need to have a pay rise? Yeah. Have a plan. So if they say no, you can go, okay, well, what about this? And that might be, you know, working with another team or 10% of your time instead of a 10% pay rise. Mm. Is there anything else that you think needs to be added to that? I think the, the only thing I would add to it is in the sense of trying to connect what you're requesting and the reasons why to something that's linked to either the value for the team or the organization. So, you know, there's often a, an explicit goal or strategy or objective that's been set by someone, CEO, director general, managing director, someone somewhere has usually set some direction and to try and link what you're requesting of why it supports and is is in line with that goal is a clever idea. Uh, Not not least because of course, that's probably what you should be doing anyway, because that's why you've probably been employed in the first place, but something that demonstrates why this is value adding to the organization. Quick question from me and the Making Money team. Would you like us to come into your workplace to teach you and your colleagues more about personal finance? It's an absolute joke that we're not taught what to do with money. And this knowledge gap makes most people much poorer over their lifetimes. Take your work-based pension. Most people have no idea what the fund they're invested in does. And plenty of people just opt out altogether. We can cover whatever is most important from the basics to complex financial retirement planning supported by qualified financial advisors who are not there to sell you anything. We take different approaches for different people in a company depending on stuff like their age or their income. If you think people you work with could benefit from financial education, then please email will at getmost.co.uk. It doesn't matter what your role is in the business, we want to hear from you. So email will at getmost.co.uk. And I've left a link in the description for you. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. 
If you missed anything in that episode, don't worry. We do a really good summary of everything that's gone on and what we discussed in our newsletter. You can sign up using the link in the description. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. It really makes a difference and lets us know what we're doing right. This is not financial advice. The reason it's not financial advice is because it's not tailored to you. Like we say a lot on the podcast, investments can fall and rise. In fact, this is almost a guarantee. Remember, past performance is no guarantee of future results. So your money is always at risk with investing. Also, remember other fees may apply. I'm Damo. I'm T. This episode was recorded by Jack Hobbs. It was produced and edited by Ruth Edwards. Johnny Hunter is in charge of all our marketing and it's all brought together by Will Stolomon.